Merry Christmas, listeners. I hope you're getting into the Christmas spirit. It's set to be another weird one, isn't it? But hopefully, here's a little bit of escapism for the next 35 minutes. The big day is almost here. I've bought myself my annual giant bottle of Calvados, a selection of nice cheeses, and my own weight in chalky coins. And hopefully this is going to be the first of many Christmas specials. I've put together an episode all about Christmas pudding. I'm going to talk about that more in a bit, except I'm trying to recreate a traditional cannonball-shaped Dickensian pudding using a proper Victorian recipe. Before we start the episode proper, there's a few blog posts coming up that you might be interested in. On the British Food History website, there's a brace of Christmas pudding posts with recipe, so there's no need to jot anything down as you're listening to the podcast. If you listen to this before Christmas Day, by the way, then it's not too late to make your Christmas pudding. In a couple of days' time, I'll be posting another recipe, plus history, of brandy butter, or rum butter, which is actually nicer. But that one's just for subscribers. Information about subscribers can be found in the show notes, or at the end of the episode. Also, on Christmas Eve, I'll be posting my annual Christmassy boozy tipple recipe. So keep an eye out for that too. One final thing before we get started. I'm on the telly again on the 21st of December... 2021, cooking up some Victorian treats. One of which is a Yorkshire Christmas pie. A huge meat pie of grotesque proportions. It's going to be on Channel 5. As I record this, I don't know what time it's going to be on, but check the listings. Anyway, it was particularly exciting for me to do because the recipe is one of the final ones from Jane Grigson's English Food. And any of you that's followed me for a while, you know I'm trying to cook every recipe in that one, and I've got a few stragglers which are tricky to do. So I was very pleased to be asked to make it. What a coincidence, eh? It's going to be blogged on my other blog, Neil Cooks Grigson, as a two-parter. One post on the history, that's already out now. And the other one, I'm actually making the thing. It was very stressful. Welcome to my first ever Christmas special. I thought I'd cover the icon of the British Christmas dinner, the Christmas pud. Absolutely love it. Though I realise it's a love or hate thing. They're pretty full on, and I realise there's a lot to hate about it. It's very rich, it's kind of stodgy, it's brimming with booze, which puts people off, and loads of dried fruit, which puts loads of people off. It did make me think, though, because I've traditionally always bought my own, and I wondered maybe some people didn't like it because, well, no one really makes one anymore, and we don't really know what a proper pudding tastes like. In the past, I've cooked Jane Grigson's Christmas pudding, didn't like it. Then. I did Delia Smith's, which should be amazing. Didn't like that one either. I just thought it was all too rich, too much booze, too many different boozes, and there was a strange, bitter, kind of metallic taste. So could this be a case where bought is actually better than homemade? Surely not. I thought maybe what I need to do was go back in time a little bit and try an early Christmas pudding recipe. I've looked at them and they seem much less rich. I want to go back to the 19th century. This is a time when Christmas, or should I say plum, or even figgy pudding, was eaten with beef, either roasted or poached. Well, they say boiled in recipes, but they mean poached. I also wanted to make a cannonball-shaped Christmas pudding. You know, the one we always think of, that Dickensian pudding eaten by the Cratchits in a Christmas carol. If you don't know the passage from the book, I have a copy here. I'm going to read it for you. People are reading along at home and they have the Penguin Classics. 
It's on page 81. The Cratchits are having their Christmas dinner. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other with laundresses next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half of a half a quartern of ignited brandy and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess that she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everyone had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. This scene appears in the book when Scrooge is shown the Cratchit family by the ghost of Christmas present. So before Scrooge has had his change of heart, and the poor, poor Cratchits still have very little. It's probably quite a plain pudding, which is why she was worried about all the flour that she had to put in it, because that's cheap. Not much booze, sugar or raisins, but all of them thought it delicious. Now Dickens does this on purpose. Everybody, rich or poor, had their Christmas pudding on Christmas Day. It's what it's all about. Britain was all about pudding, whoever you were. Agatha Christie wrote a story called The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding. She does a really good description. She says, On a silver dish, the Christmas pudding reposed in its glory. A large football of a pudding, a piece of holly stuck in it like a triumphant flag and glorious flames of blue and red rising from it. There were cheers and cries of ooh, ah. I just love that description. Now, I reached out to Twitter to see if anybody could point me in the right direction of a corker of a recipe. I got back suggestions saying I should go and have a look at Mrs. Beaton, Eliza Acton, and I'd earmarked her already. We're going to talk about her a little bit later in the episode. But then Sam Bilton, food historian and friend of the show, kindly suggested an old family recipe that went back to the 19th century, her great Aunt Eliza's plum pudding. She even sent me an image of the page written in Aunt Eliza's own hand. And if you go onto the blog and have a look at the first of my Christmas pudding themed posts, it's there to have a look at. If you want to know more about great Aunt Eliza's pudding, go to sambilton.com. Sam's written a great post all about it. I'll leave a link in the show notes. It's traditional to make your plum pudding, Christmas pudding, on a day called Stirred Up Sunday. Actually, you can make your Christmas pudding pretty much any day. You can even make it Christmas Eve if you wanted to. But I did make mine on that day, and I recorded a little cooking spot as I did it. Here's how I got on. It's Stir Up Sunday. I'm going to make great Aunt Eliza's Christmas pudding. In one bowl, I have breadcrumbs. Plain flour and suet. In another one, I have, well, the dried fruit. So I've got currants. The recipe says plums. Now, here's the thing about plums in plum pudding. It's generally regarded that there aren't plums or prunes, should I say, in them. The idea is when you make the cannonball-shaped pudding and unwrap it, it looks like a giant prune, kind of unctuous and sticky and nice. And if you know the Christmas carol where they say, now bring us some figgy pudding, 
There's no figs in Christmas puddings either. Again, because it looks like a fig when you unwrap it. But this recipe says plums, which we assume are prunes. Or it could be, again, some people think the word prune was used for a general word to describe any kind of dried fruit. So we don't know. I've split the difference and I've gone half plums, half raisins. There's also currants in here and there's some citron. Now, depending on how rich or poor you were, there would be more of the flour and breadcrumbs and suet and less of the dried fruit and citron. In fact, there'd probably just be currants in there. The reason why that is, is well, all your raisins, all your sultanas came with the seeds still in them. There weren't seedless versions of them. So you had to actually employ someone or you had to do it yourself to painstakingly take all the seeds out, all the individual raisins. Nightmare. Currants, however, are small enough for the seeds to not really be noticeable. So there was a preference, particularly with the working classes, for currants over raisins and sultanas. These days we don't have to worry about it, of course. I've taken Grant Eliza's recipe, which was massive, one that would have to boil for 15 hours. So what I've done is I've taken the recipe, I've put it into metrics, and then I've divided it by a third. And then from that third, I'm going to make two Christmas puddings. That's the plan. Although looking at all the ingredients in these two bowls in front of me, it's still going to be pretty big. Well, I've started now, so I've got to do it. I'm going to put in the last few ingredients. Now, on her list was bitter almonds. Not very many bitter almonds. They are there for the almond flavour rather than as, you know, a noticeable nut to nibble on. Bitter almonds, when you buy almond extract, you might think, hmm, well, this smells so almondy. Yes, it's great, but almonds don't smell like that. Well, when you buy almond extract, it's actually an extract of bitter almonds that you've got there. Anyway, I'm going to add maybe a capful, which I suppose is a teaspoon and a bit. It's pretty pungent stuff. So I'm going to add that to my dried fruit. I'm going to add to my dry ingredients, mixed spice, two teaspoons, one, two. Again, it would depend on how much you've saved up or how, how rich you were as to what spices going in there. For some, it might just be a grated half nutmeg, which were relatively cheap from the kind of 18th century onwards. The other spices were a bit more expensive. Next is some soft dark brown sugar called uh, moist sugar in old recipes, and it is in great Antaliza's recipe. So that's all our dry stuff. We're going to put the liquids in now. Well, actually, I'm going to measure them in a jug first. And I think this is what's going to be the saving grace. There is booze, but there's just two boozes. We have brandy, which I'm not a big fan of, except in things like Christmas cake, so I don't mind that. 40 mils. Also, 40 mils of rum. Have a look to see what you've got in the old alcohol cupboard. <laughs> I reckon whiskey would be fine. Sherry would be fine too. Dry sherry would be fine too. Also, milk. And then a couple of eggs. One egg. I'm just dropping them straight into the alcohols and milk. And then I'm going to beat these up. Oh, that smells of Christmas. That smells good. So that's everything. Now really it's just a question of mixing all of the dry ingredients together. I've got them in two separate bowls at the minute, so let's put them all in one bowl. 
Oh, it's quite full. And get and get mixing together. Let's just talk about Stir Up Sunday for briefly. Now, Stir Up Sunday is kind of thought of, oh, it's the day you stir up the Christmas pudding. But actually, it sort of seems to anyway predate that. So Stir Up Sunday happens the Sunday before Advent, or if you like, the 25th Sunday after Trinity, in other words, uh, Pentecost. So it's always in late November, basically. Children recite a verse as they stir up their ingredients. I'm going to stir and recite, at least attempt to anyway. I don't know the tune, I'm just going to say it. Stir up, we beseech thee, the pudding in the pot. And when we get home, we'll eat it all hot. Oh, that's nice. But that's actually based on a prayer that used to be said on this day, which was, stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. And it's a poem that kind of goes on for a couple more lines than that. But really, it's to stir up people's emotions, to get them thinking about Advent, which was coming up, and of course, Christmas tide. So it's to stir up feelings, not to stir up puddings. However, you do stir up puddings, so why not put them together? And aside from Stir Up Sunday being an opportunity for housewives to organise their Christmas puddings, it was also the opportunity for the local grocers to get ordering their food, perhaps starting to make their own food ready for Christmas. Take note of this, supermarkets. Don't need to do it in August, do you? Wait for Stir Up Sunday, maybe, in future. Thank you. There's a certain number of superstitions. First of all, you have to get everybody into the kitchen to either have a good old stir themselves or add at least one ingredient. This is just all, well, I mean, it's bringing the family together, of course. But, of course, if you don't do it, it's bad luck. But really, it's just a way to bring the family together. I'm using my hands here. And the other thing, where's my liquids gone? Oh, they're right in front of me. I'm going to add these in now. I'm just going to carry on using my hand here. Don't write in. Now, there are certain things that you need to do when you are mixing. First of all, you need to make sure that you're stirring clockwise or from east to west. The reason being, well, east to west because of the sun. Sorry about the noise in the background there. Why is stirring clockwise so important? Well, it's a funny one. I've seen it crop up before. In Scotland, you have to stir your porridge in a clockwise direction. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why clockwise is lucky and anti-clockwise. Maybe it's just because it's anti-clockwise. It's going against time and against the normal ways and nature or something. I don't know. I'm talking nonsense. But anyway, clockwise, please. Let's just talk about trinkets a second. They go in. They all have a symbolic meaning. If you go way, way back, it was a bean that was put in. Whoever got that bean would be king of the bean and be treated like a king for the rest of the day. Or they would be the Lord of Misrule, which is a subject, potentially, of another podcast. We're doing Christmas puddings today. We think of the traditional thing as being, or I do anyway, uh, about a shiny sixpence. Now go back to Victorian times or whatever, it's great. You can go spend your shiny sixpence. But people still put them in, even though they're not legal tender, because they're a sign of good luck and prosperity for the year ahead. Sometimes you find a ring and that symbolises, if you find the ring anyway, it symbolises romance, marriage and love coming up in the next year. You might find a thimble. That was very common. That denotes a spinster. 
you're not going to get married over the next year. So it's kind of a bad look. You have another year sitting on your own darning socks or whatever spinsters do. Oh, they spin, don't they? <laughs> One other thing about proper Christmas pudding, and I fear people like Delia Smith did not stick to this and too many ingredients were put in. There should be 13 ingredients representing Jesus and the 12 disciples. I don't know. Let's just have a look. Did Aunt Eliza do this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There are thirteen ingredients. <laughs> well done, great Aunt Eliza. Well, as I've been chatting, all of this has come together now. This looks a little bit dry. I'm having a certain amount of problem getting some of the dry ingredients to mix in properly. I don't think there's enough liquid. I'm going to add. A little bit more. Let's have a look. Now, I prefer rum to brandy. So I'm going to put some more rum in. I reckon I probably put the same amount again in. This may be a huge error, but, you know, I'm going to own my error if it is one. Now that they're mixed together, it doesn't seem as much. So I don't think it's going to be an absolutely huge, giant monster pudding now. I'm just going to leave this for 24 hours covered. Somewhere cool. If you haven't got somewhere cool in the house, put it in the fridge. And tomorrow, it's going to go in its pudding cloth and it's going to boil and be a wonderful Christmas pudding. Day two. Peel back my lid. Hmm, that's smelling really nice. Especially the almond extract. Now I need to form the pudding. I've weighed this mixture and it came out as 1.601 kilos. So that means I'm going to make two puddings of 800 grams. I worked out that great Grant Eliza's pudding, that full mixture, would have made a 4.8 kilo Christmas pudding. My God. That's quite a thing. I'm sure it would have been a thing of beauty. Now, I'm going to do these puddings traditionally in a cloth. So I have, let's try and do this, a pudding cloth. And... I got it in hot, hot water. Ha, too hot for my fingers. Sorry about the background noise, by the way. I've got something bubbling in the background. So squeeze out the excess water gingerly. Ha, goucher, goucher. Now this bit of muslin or cheesecloth, you could use a tea towel. It measures 50 by 30, something like that, centimeters. I'm folding it in half and I'm putting it in a small bowl. I fold it in half just because the muslin doesn't seem very sturdy. If you're using a tea towel you wouldn't have to fold it over. So I have my scalded and damp muslin in a dish, teared scales. Oh actually, hang on, I almost forgot. I need to flour the pudding cloth. I don't have a dredger, I'm gonna have to use my fingers. And I'm just shaking it over so there's a good Layer. This is the equivalent of flouring and greasing a cake tin before you put the cake batter in. So this just stops it sticking. Whoops. That's the idea anyway. Okay, now I can tear my scales. I'm putting my 800 grams of mixture. So I have my pudding in the cloth. Now it's just a time to gather it around the pudding. And you need to squeeze it into a good, nice cannonball shape. I've got some string already cut. Really, it's a case now of really tightly and securely wrapping and tying the string. 
is quite tricky to do with only two hands. You need a third hand. I wish I knew butcher's nuts. I'm quite pleased with that. I'm going to do the other one. You don't want to hear me doing that. Right, I'm just finishing tying one long piece of string to the neck of the pudding. And what I'm going to do is going to drop it in my big pot of water. I've got a simmering. That's the kind of hissing noise you could hear all the way throughout this. And I'm going to drop it in. And what I don't want it to do is sit on the bottom. So what I'm going to do is now use that long bit of string and tie it to a handle. Then when I'm happy that one is secure, I'm just going to do the same with the other one. Great Aunt Eliza's pudding took 15 hours to boil. <laughs> so I've done a third mixture. That means it would be five hours. But I've split the third into two. So it's going to be a two and a half hour boiling, which you need to do as soon as you've made it. We'll store it and it gets boiled again on the big day. Okay, my alarm's gone off. When you pull them out, pudding number one. Today would be nice butter balls. Seeing the pudding's cooked in this way and seeing the slightly cloudy water that's been left behind is really quite evocative. A lot of British food is cooked in this way. Some kind of pudding could be peas pudding and then in there, a joint of meat, so you'd have a proper stock, maybe some vegetables too. And quite often what you'd have is the broth left behind as a starter, and then your meat, pudding and vegetables as your main course. It's not what we do now. Christmas time, of course, you would ignore the boiled beef and hope to be going for a nice roast beef. Right, I'm going to inspect my puddings. Two and a half hours Boiling time might seem like quite a long time. 15 hours for the original recipe is certainly a long time. But you have to remember, these puddings and this kind of cooking was utilising the cooking equipment that was to hand. And for most families, the fire or the range would have been on all day because it had to supply hot water for not just for the family, for drinks and for food, but to wash up laundry, their clothes, and if you stopped a fire and started it up again, it requires loads of fuel. So it's actually better to keep it just ticking over all day. So you had heat all day, so use it. So having something cooking for 15 hours was not crazy in the 19th century. I guess now they just need to cool and I can keep them somewhere cool, dry, out of the way, you could freeze them at this point too. My interpretation of Great Aunt Eliza's Christmas Stroke Plum Pudding is on the website. And of course, if you want to have a go at making a Christmas pudding yourself, there's still time. And we'll see how I got on with Great Aunt Eliza's pudding in a little bit. First though, let's have a little look at the history and origins of Christmas pudding. The first thing you might be wanting to know is the difference between Christmas pudding and plum pudding. Well, I mean, there isn't one really, except maybe that the Christmas one is a bit richer. Plum pudding used to be eaten with roast beef, believe it or not, all year round, and it was regarded as the quintessential British dish. It used British beef, which was cooked with the pudding, and that pudding was made from the bounties of the British Empire, as well as its web of trading that kind of got into every single corner of the globe. 
sugar, rum, dried fruits, spices. It was all a celebration of just how great Britain and its empire was. This football of a pudding is shown in a famous cartoon by James Gilray in 1805. It's called The Plum Pudding in Danger, and it shows William Pitt the Younger and Napoleon slicing the globe, which is depicted as a huge pudding. You see, France and Britain's constant warring and scrapping over their colonies and the trade routes was just, well, spoiling things for everybody in Europe. And really, it was all between them. Hence, why it's those two dividing up this globe between them. Of course, there's an extra layer of meaning in there, because all the warring and the trade blocking also meant that the very ingredients for this most British dish, the plum pudding, were potentially disrupted. In other words, your Britishness and your identity was potentially being taken away by the French. Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's on the blog post associated with this episode. So have a look in the show notes and follow the link there if you want to have a look at it. Now, there's early mentions of plum pudding and Christmas. So when do plum puddings get linked to Christmas? Well, maybe it happened in the 17th century. The reason I say that is there's a very early description of a Christmas feast, 1675, and it's in the diary of an ex-naval captain called Henry Tung. I think that's how you pronounce his name. T-E-O-N-G-E, anyway. And he mentions eating his plum pudding with a rib of beef and some mince pies. The first mention of a Christmas pudding, rather than a plum pudding, pops up in Eliza Acton's 1845 classic tome, Modern Cookery for Private Families. In her book, there are raisin puddings, there's a light plum pudding, a vegetable plum pudding, as well as, and here it is, the author's own Christmas pudding. Now, it's the same as all the other ones, really, except she's put more booze in it. Interestingly, Eliza Acton describes these boiled cannonball-shaped puddings as very light. But there's no raising agent in there. I mean, well, I suppose we'll see how mine turns out later. Over the decades and the centuries, more booze and different kinds of booze are added. There's more richness, there's candied citron, things like that. She gives the option to cook the puddings in two different ways. First of all, boiling it in a cloth, or steaming it in a basin or some other mould, which is the one we're more familiar with today. All right, so there's no real difference between plum and Christmas pudding. So where does plum pudding come from? Well, there's two different theories. Theory number one, the pottage theory. So there's a dish called Christmas pottage. I made it on a Channel 5 show. It was shown at the end of November Of course, there's a link in the show notes if you want to see it. I've also written a blog post about it in the past. Now, this pottage has got many plum pudding ingredients. There's dried fruit, there's booze, there's breadcrumbs, sugar and spices, but there's also meat like shin of beef. Now, the theory goes is that the pottage was thickened with more breadcrumbs. The amount of booze may be reduced, making the thick porridge something that could be boiled in a bag. Certainly something that a spoon would stand up in. Something like peas pudding has a similar evolution. So that's theory one. Theory two, I've called the pudding stroke dumpling theory. Now, puddings have been around for centuries, at least since the Roman occupation. And traditionally, they were cooked in intestines. Some were meaty, but some were mixtures of fats, carbs and various liquids. Rice pudding and bread or butter pudding, believe it or not, have these origins in these sorts of puds. But then eventually puddings were cooked in cloths and then basins. 
so no one had to wait around for intestines. Everyone could make puddings and they became part of every housewife, cook and chef's repertoire. And there's a great diversification. Now, as time went on, as rich and expensive ingredients got cheaper, plain puddings got richer and richer. I mean, I really need to do a puddings episode in a future season. So I'll go back to this topic in the future. So which is it? Is it the pottage theory or is it the pudding theory? Well, look, we don't know. There's so much overlap here. And you could argue that pottage and puddings have the same origin anyway. Plus, there are limited ingredients available, so there's going to be loads of cross-contamination. So it's all a bit of a murky mess. So, you know, you decide. It's time to get back to Antelice's pudding. It's a big day. The pudding has been simmering well. It has been full-on boiling for just under two hours. I reckon that's enough time for the one pudding to heat through again. Oh, let's just grab it over. It doesn't look that impressive, I must say. Let's see, let's see. Well, I'm gonna wrestle with the pud, just in doing the string. The string's tied to the pudding, tied to the handle, so that the pudding doesn't touch the surface of the pan and scorch the bottom. So it's out. And we can actually have a look inside. Okay, it's quite hot, I'm just peeling it away. Well, it's staying together. It's coming away from the cloth, which is good, so that means I put enough uh, flour on it. Oh, it's so hot, I can't pick it up. Hot, 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 hot. There it is. Okay, well, look, I'm gonna take a photograph of it before I do anything else. Actually, I tell a lie. I'm gonna put in a couple of sprigs of holly. It's a traditional thing to stick at the top of your pudding, isn't it? Careful of the berries, though. The berries are poisonous. Holly's traditionally put on Christmas puddings, I read, because it's kind of a good luck thing. Again, everything's got symbolism. And in the case of Holly, it wards against witches. And we all know how much of a nightmare they can be at Christmas time, especially in South Manchester, where I am. So I'm very happy I'm going to have a witch-free Christmas. What do we serve with our Christmas pudding? Well, I'm going to go down the brandy butter stroke rum butter route. If you're not familiar with brandy butter, it's a mixture of softened butter and brandy, sugar and a few spices. The two issues I really have with brandy butter is it's extremely rich and Christmas puddings today are also extremely rich. I always think something bland should go with Christmas pudding. Double cream, custard, something like that. Why on earth you could put super rich brandy butter on, I don't know. Just looking at the plum pudding, I can see it's going to be plainer than a regular Christmas pudding, but that's going to be no bad thing. It's not going to be over rich. Remember, this would have been cooked and eaten with roast beef. Seeing a plainer Christmas pudding like this makes brandy butter make much more sense. But brandy butter is nowhere near as good as rum butter. It's a great improvement. Also, it uses brown sugar, and brandy butter usually uses white sugar or icing sugar. So it's better flavour, more complex, not as kind of, you know, teeth-achingly sweet as brandy butter can be sometimes. So that's fine. And then you need to flambe the pudding. Now, I'm going to use rum again, because I prefer it over brandy. And there was rum in the pudding as well as brandy, so, you know, it's not going to clash flavour-wise. People try and pour 
their spirit of choice on the pudding and try and light it with a match and it doesn't go up. No, it needs to be warm first. It's gonna be much easier if you put some rum in the pan, let it warm up with a hob on extremely low. You don't want it to boil. What you find is if you spoon some of that over, you can light it quite easily. It still doesn't always light though. The best thing to do, I'm gonna try and do it now, is actually get your couple of tablespoons of rum, make sure it is warm. Stick your finger in, Ooh, it's warm. What you do is tip it up. You don't wanna pour any out, but just get the rum right to the edge and then light it. Let's see if we can hear the flames. Beautiful blue flames. Woo. You do get a lot of flame off a small amount of rum or brandy, so you really just need a couple of tablespoons. Listen to it going. There's no rush, it's not gonna go out. Get it lit, turn the lights off, pour it over and walk in. And everyone will go, ah. Oh, don't forget to take the holly berries out and the leaves because they'll set on fire. Here we go. Open up the pudding. Oh, wow. It really does look like a giant big fig. Because of all that flour that I shook on it before I tied it up so it wouldn't stick. It kind of looks a bit pale on the outside, but inside, pretty promising. Okay, a slice. Get some rum butter. I'll try not to eat too close to the microphone because I know how gross it is. Oh my God, that's delicious. Oh, well done, great Aunt Eliza. Oh, I looked the part. And it tastes, it's the best Christmas pudding I've ever had. Oh, thank you so much, Sam, for letting me use the recipe. I'm going to show up now and eat it. Well, that brings us to the end of my little Christmas spesh. Thanks again to Sam Bilton for the loan of her great Aunt Eliza's recipe. It really is excellent. There are loads of recipes and posts all about Christmas on my blog, including Christmas puddings, brandy or rum butter, but there's mince pies and there and loads of boozy drinks. Familiar ones that you'll know like, I don't know, mulled wine, and some that you might not be aware of, like Smoking Bishop. Have a gander. I'll be back with another episode, landing somewhere between Christmas and New Year. I'm not sure exactly what day. I'll try and make it Sunday. But you know what Christmas is like. You don't know what day of the week it is. But if you want to keep tabs on me, subscribe to the podcast via your favourite podcast provider, or subscribe to the blog, britishfoodhistory.com, to keep tabs on me. Just a reminder that exciting times are afoot. My first book, A Dark History of Sugar, is published by Pen and Sword History and is due out on the 30th of March, 2022, which is ages away. But you can pre-order a copy if you fancy it. I have now spotted it on Amazon's, Waterstone's and WH Smith's website. Also, if you're in the UK, don't forget to check out Channel 5 on the 21st of December to see me having a complete meltdown making a giant pie. How about supporting the blogs and podcast? Subscribers get to access my Easter eggs page with loads of deleted scenes, extra bits, outtakes. There's also extra blog posts that are just for subscribers. There's even an extra mini season that happened between this one and the previous one. And it's all about forgotten foods. A big thank you to anybody who is a subscriber or has bought me a coffee or a pint via the blog. I am most grateful. A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive goes back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me to a virtual coffee or a virtual pint. Go to the support the blog and podcast tab 
on the website. If you don't want to be a subscriber, obviously that's okay. But please like and subscribe and tell a friend or two if you can. And really importantly, leave comments and ratings on whichever platform you prefer to get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode or any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at Dr. Underscore Neil Underscore Buttery. Because I keep banging on about it, don't I? There's going to be some post-bag episodes, probably the end of this season, maybe the start of the next one. I'm not sure yet. It depends how many people contact me, I suppose. Anyway, have a lovely Christmas, and I'll see you again in about a week. Cheerio!